Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. Picture a Valentine's Day card. You probably see pink and red hearts, maybe a fun rhyme. Maybe one of those postcards printed for students to hand out in class, Snoopy or some superhero saying, Be my Valentine, ready to be passed along with some candy hearts and a shy smile. It's a sweet tradition. But for a day celebrating the chance to turn a private crush into something more, Valentine's Day wasn't always so sweet. And of course, there have always been people who didn't exactly feel warm fuzzies every time that day came around. So, what's in it for them? Well, the Victorians had an answer for that. Recently, a historian looking through a British museum found a leather-bound volume of Valentine's cards from around 1870, the kind of display book that a salesman would bring to stationery stores to show business owners what they could bring there to their shelves on Valentine's Day. The first half of the book is predictable. Cherubs, flowers, silver spirals, the kinds of classy cards Victorian lovebirds might buy for each other. The second half, though, is more for the mockingbirds. The back of the album is full of postcards that were printed with devastating insults and hurtful rhymes. The illustrations are rude caricatures and crass parodies of lovely greetings. Some of them even cross over the line from the hideous to the obscene. Compared to the other cards, they're a little rougher. They're printed quickly on cheap sheets of paper. After all, you probably want to put most of your money into praising your friends, not insulting your enemies. Even so, there were plenty of choices for the discerning buyer. Take, for example, the card showing a gentleman in striped trousers getting a bucket of water splashed in his face by a smiling woman. His hat flies off the edge of the page, and the rhyme underneath it reads, It says as plain as it can say, Old fellow, you best step away. Another example is a card that's covered in delicate calligraphy, but ironically reads, Indeed you are a little prig, for home I do not care one fig. Now, I'm not saying they would win any prizes for poetry, but if you want to put a suitor off your case, looking at the grin of the woman with the bucket of water gives us a glimpse of how someone might feel putting their coins down on the counter in the stationery shop. But these mocking cards weren't just printed to stop unwanted attention. They were also called Vinegar Valentines, printed in the event that you just wanted to insult someone in your life, holiday or no. Angry at a salesperson for how you were treated in their store? There's a card for that, illustrated with an obnoxious cashier behind the counter. There were cards printed to sling at school teachers, neighbors, and so many more. Look, any trip to the comment section on a website will show you that cheap insults have never gone out of style. So that raises the question why there aren't more of these cards around. The fact of the matter is, they didn't last. First of all, they were probably thrown away when they were received, because these valentines didn't sing. They stung. One writer from the time remembered getting one, and she said that she threw it directly into the fire. Still, enough of them have survived that today, historians guess that something like 750,000 vinegar valentines were being sent, each and every year. But even as they rose in popularity, there was plenty of pushback, too. Valentine's Day has its fans, 
and they weren't too happy that a day celebrating innocent love was being polluted with overly malicious notes. And there's another twist on all this, too, that may be part of the outrage against Vinegar Valentines. You see, the Victorian era was a time, like today, when cards could be sent through the mail anonymously. What's different from the present is that these were the days before the English mail used stamps. Letters and cards could just be dropped into the mail without the sender paying up front to get them delivered. The mail still had to be paid for, though. And who ponied up? The person who received the mail. Which means that people actually had to pay for the privilege of being insulted. Today, a lot has changed. And even for those of us who don't enjoy all the sugary sweetness of candy hearts, at least we can all be grateful to leave behind the tradition of adding insult to injury. Amelia was used to going anywhere she wanted. That's because she could fly. And yes, I'm talking about that Amelia. Amelia Earhart. She didn't start out as a pilot, of course. During the 1918 flu pandemic, she was one of the most trusted nurses' aides in a military hospital, working night shifts in the pneumonia ward. But it was in the winter of that year that she first caught an interest in flying. She remembered that some of the military officers she knew from the hospital were being trained to fly. And in her time off from nursing duty, she would go to their makeshift airfields and watch them take off. She never got over the sting of the snow on her face as it was blown back from the propellers. Within just a few years, those propellers were hers. She had her first flying lesson in 1921 from another woman pilot named Netta Snook. By that summer, she had scraped together enough money to buy a yellow biplane that she called the Canary. The next fall, Amelia broke a world record for female pilots when she took her little plane up to 14,000 feet. She wasn't done, of course. She had always had a reputation for being curious and bold, and the more she flew, the more ambitious she got. In 1928, she became the first woman to fly across the Atlantic Ocean, but she wasn't the pilot. She became the first woman to travel over the ocean by air, but the fact that she was only a passenger for the trip didn't sit well with her. Obviously, she knew how to fly. She'd already been piloting shorter flights for almost 10 years, so it's no wonder she wasn't quite happy sitting there while someone else worked the controls. After all, she wasn't a woman who was happy with being bred to humility, as she later said. No, Amelia was born for altitude. So it was a triumph of both her talent and her courage when she finally flew herself across the Atlantic two years later in 1932. Successes like that opened new doors for her. When she got home from that trip, she had standing invitations to just about anywhere she liked. After all, who wouldn't want to host such a trailblazing spirit? So the dinner parties where Amelia found herself were more and more lavish, and more and more exciting. But no matter how exciting they got, they still never quite met Amelia's high expectations. Take, for example, one particular dinner she attended on April 20th of 1933. It was about as swanky as it gets. In those days, the newspapers loved to report on what Amelia would wear to her high-profile gatherings. And that night, she went hatless, but wore high heels, a long white gown, a short black coat, and white evening gloves. Just the sort of thing high society papers would expect from a high society dinner. What no one expected, though, was that halfway through, Amelia would turn to her hostess and invite her out into the night sky. On a whim, she suggested a flight to Baltimore. Perhaps just as surprising, her hostess agreed. It wasn't because it was a nice night, though. Honestly, the clouds were low and it was sputtering rain. 
but the whole dinner party jumped up from the table and called ahead to the airport. Amelia Earhart was taking them into the sky. The airport scrambled to get ready. One newspaper said that the airstrip was just one gigantic mud puddle that night, lavishly streaked with water that hadn't soaked in. But Amelia marched her high heels to the waiting plane and ushered the dinner party inside. Soon enough, they were in the air. Some of the passengers remembered that Amelia didn't even take off her heels and gloves to fly. She was instantly at home. Now she was the hostess, and the rest of the group were simply along for the ride. Amelia flew them along the Potomac River, buzzed the Capitol building, and then turned northeast toward Baltimore. She made an impression that night, but then she always seemed to do that everywhere she flew. This time, though, Amelia's hostess was so inspired that she asked for flying lessons, and Amelia agreed. Those lessons never came about, though. That woman's husband felt that flying was just too dangerous, which is understandable. He was accustomed to worrying about danger, being the president of the United States. So while Eleanor Roosevelt never got her chance to learn from Amelia Earhart, it's clear they would have made quite a pair. The First Lady and the First Lady of Flight. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.